people like myself have such a deep love for my fellow countrymen and fellow countrywoman for that matter. Um, because when I'm out there and when I see people who are suffering, there I, I have no other option but to love them and but to try to help them, even if I disagree politically with them. Like, like, sure, is the overwhelming majority of this country absolutely filled with like cancerous American exceptionalist ideology? Yes, yes. Do I like that? No. In the same way that I reject the imperialist state that I live within, I reject that shit too. But I can love them for other things and I can try to help them and try to see uh, that a, a Marxist vision, a Marxist future in this country is the future that we all need. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Midwestern Marx podcast. I am here as always with my co-host, um, and my brother from another mother, Carlos Garrido. Um, and we're also joined today by a very special guest, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Jackson Hinkle. Um, how are you doing today, Jackson? I'm doing well. Thank you uh, so much for having me. I love your I love your channel and all the work you guys do. So I'm stoked to be here. You bet. Same to you. Yeah, we're great. We're huge fans of the, the content that you've been putting out lately. Thank you. Thank you. So Jackson, we wanted to start by asking a sort of background question. Um, you ran for office in 2018 in California, right? I did. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about what led you to run uh, for office. What were some of the things that uh, you were focusing on then? And what relation does that run have towards you coming to a position of Marxism or Marxism-Leninism? Do you come to it before? Do you come to it after? What's What's going on there and what's the relationship between the run and your political positions now? Yeah, so um, I ran for city council twice in my hometown of San Clemente, California. And um, whew, I mean, when, when I ran, I was like far more of a shit lib. I, I, was a, I was a Bernie supporter, but that was like the furthest left. I was a little bit to the left of Bernie on foreign policy, but like, Really, it was a lot of local issues when I ran. Um, San Clemente is the southernmost city in Orange County, very conservative city in a conservative county in California. And it's a very affluent area. So most of my politics were focused on uh, three central issues of um, like environmental protection and housing justice and, uh, and, and trying to establish more uh, forms of like transparency and anti-corruption ordinances within our local government but um that manifested in a, like a, a myriad of ways like we have the largest de facto nuclear waste policy in the country just down the street from where i live so addressing that is a really big issue um there was an effort to build a toll road through the heart of my community which would have impacted the coastal region here that was a really big issue and then uh homelessness is it's always been a big issue in Orange County, but like when I ran specifically, it was a, it was a huge issue. So um, looking at like permanent supportive housing, guaranteeing housing as a human right and focusing on, you know, supplemental care thereafter. Um, those were all really big issues. And then lastly, like uh, renegotiating, getting rid of our sheriff's department contract and establishing a local um, law enforcement department that would have replaced them. So those were the big issues. I would say that my my ideology today has shifted far more to what is now like a Marxist-Leninist anti-imperialist ideology. 
Um, but it, it's always been rooted. My, my political views have always been rooted in environmentalism and fighting against corruption and the oligarchy um, and, and, you know, trying to hand more power to the working class and to the disadvantaged. So if you extrapolate those views, I mean, it, it lines up perfectly with where I'm at now. For sure. Was it a lot of theory reading that got you into a position of Marxism or did you just uh, figure out your principles kind of aligned with Marxism Leninism? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I've read like a significant portion of theory. Like, I feel like I've read the basics. Um, but beyond that, like, I don't I don't consume myself with uh, dedicating like a lot of time and energy towards theory. I never really have. And it's just not it, it's not the most interesting thing in the world to me, but I feel like a lot of the um, countries that I see succeeding today that are still succeeding uh, at, at the, you know, still suffering under the hands of like economic and military uh, oppression by the United States, what they're doing is what we should be doing here. And if we could do it here in the United States, if we had like leaders who would actually implement socialist policies, then God, like imagine that. Imagine how incredible it would be here. Imagine how incredible it would be if we implemented policies like those of, say, what Evo Morales has put forward in Bolivia or what the new Peruvian government is going to be trying to fight for or what, you know, Venezuelan revolutionaries have fought for. Like th those those sorts of ideologies are kind of like where I've gone to learn about um, different forms of socialism, what ch China has been able to do. Um, and kind of like learning from like socialist countries and, and looking at that and saying like, these are things that I generally agree with. And it would be uh, so impactful if we could do those things here. So I'd say it's more looking at uh, the world and, and looking at what works and doesn't work. That's informed where I'm at today politically. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Would you say that the Leninist aspect of your of your ideology is important to you? And, the, and then what would you like define that as? Because, you know, a lot of people will embrace the term Marxist, but it takes a while to decide sort of what sect they are um, of Marxism. Obviously, Carlos and I are, are Marxist Leninists, but but what does that Leninist um, um, term mean to you? And um, how does it impact how you see the world? Well, the, one of the most impactful, like, um, like pieces of theory I've ever read was Lenin's uh, writings on anti-imperialism. And it like, it, it was really interesting because when I read it, like I'd never, yes, I'd never really, uh, I'd never really like um, thought of anti-imperialism in a truly like holistic manner. Like he breaks down in that book. And when, so like, I was just thinking of anti-imperialism always as like a, as a 21st century anti-imperialism. You just think of like, you know, stop, stop the interventionist wars that are trying to exploit other countries for their raw minerals. But the way he breaks it down there definitely contributed to how I see the world today and like how I really understand U.S. foreign policy and how I think we should be pushing for foreign policy with other nations. Um, so I think like as far as Lenin goes, that was probably the biggest thing for me because most of my politics and most of the political coverage I do has always been based around foreign policy. So I feel like I could always pick out what's bad and what's not good. Um, but there's never been like anyone who's put it so succinctly as like what just, you know, what, what just policy for a nation working mutually with other uh, workers around the world could look like.
For sure. Yeah. I had a very similar experience majoring in politics in college and, and learning about, you know, global politics and the interventionism of the U.S. And then I found this book and, and like you said, it, it put things so succinctly and it almost made it into like a science, right? Where you can really, really see the base of what's going on. The way I describe it sometimes is it's like when you study politics, you can see the puppets, you know, you can see the horrible actions of the U.S. government. But then once you study Marx and Lenin, you see the puppet masters, you see that it's the capitalists looking to expand their finance capital overseas and um, really broadens your understanding of it, um, I think. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Definitely had like a similar experience myself. Nice. Yeah, so I think that's an important point. It's almost and we see it with like a lot of well-meaning liberal that are liberals that are like anti-war and they'll call things out. Um, but what Lenin allows you to do is sort of tie it into why that extension, that militarism that we see from the US is a necessary result of just the basic relations uh, that come about with the capitalist mode of life. Um, but to move on a little bit to uh, the reason why you're uh, uh, the man of the week, <laughs> you made a quite controversial topic, uh, controversial at least for what the modern left in the US is, we don't think it's controversial over here, but you made, uh, you, you made a tweet on your account that blew up, uh, which says, uh, for those that haven't seen it yet, uh, I am a Marxist-Leninist, I'm an anti-imperialist, I'm an American patriot. So um, since you have now sort of described what you mean by the first couple things, do you wanna talk about the third thing? How do you interpret American patriotism and how do you relate it to the first two things that come about in your tweet? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I see American patriotism specifically. Uh, well, I think I think if you're a communist, you have to be a patriot. I, that's just what I believe. Um, and I think if you're a patriot, you have to be a communist. I, I don't think you can be a patriot who wants to send more Americans into these endless imperialist wars. I don't think you can be a patriot if you believe in exclusionary politics, I, I don't think you can be a patriot if you um, want to exploit the people who are building this country. Um, so yeah, I, I think those two things go hand in hand. Um, and there is the difference that needs to be made between like super patriotism, as Michael Parenti put it, and patriotism, real patriotism. Sometimes people like to distinguish it as like proletarian patri patriotism, which I've done in the past, but really it, it's just patriotism. It, it's not like you have to clarify, oh, only proletarian. It's like, no, the pa real patriotism is proletarian patriotism. You don't need to specify. So um, yeah, as a patriot, my patriotism, as I discussed, and as I believe all real patriotism to be is an, ex an inclusive patriotism that recognizes and rejects the evil that our country has done it is a patriotism that um, uplifts and, and uh, you know, uh, glorifies the positive working class history, labor history, anti-war history, uh, communist and socialist history in this country, um, the radical history of this country that is so often trying to be erased by the like mainstream shit libs and liberal progressives that dominate political scenes and spaces today in the United States, they'll tell you that there is no, you know, US history that's worth fighting for or worth protecting or worth uh, learning about in, in the sense that you learn about it and you and you promote it again, and you try to relive that and build upon it. Um, and 
yeah. So I, I just, I, I didn't really think it was going to be a controversial thing to say. Like I've sent out tweets that I know are going to be controversial in the past and you just do it. But with this one, I, I thought people would either just kind of like it or, or just kind of move on. And it wouldn't be that big of a deal if they didn't like it. Um, I was very surprised when it sparked that controversy. I still don't really understand why it sparked so much controversy. I mean, I, I understand that like people say, oh, the United States is a settler colonial state, but okay, what do you think about patriots in Peru? What do you think about patriots in Bolivia? What do you think about patriots in Cuba? What do you think about patriots in Venezuela? Because all of the patriots there are the true socialists who are taking over the country and building working class solidarity. And um, th those are the real patriots. And Fidel Castro encouraged Americans to be patriots. Mao Zedong encouraged Americans to be patriots and, and Jap Japanese people to be patriots. Um, Lenin himself would talk about the American working class and their achievements and the revolutionaries and the, uh, the radicals who were fighting for equity um, in the Civil War and why they need to be proud of their history for, for things like that and people like that. So, um, Look, I, I didn't think it was going to be controversial. It was, but I think it sparked a really good debate and it brought up a, a discussion that I don't think has been had uh, at least as in-depth as we saw it this week, which was pretty cool. Yeah, it is a good debate and it's it's an important debate, debate to be had. And, you know, maybe Twitter isn't always the best place to have that debate because it ends up being a lot of piling on and a lot of people trying to, you know, uh, dunk on others or whatever else rather than actually have the nuanced conversation. But um, it sparked a, a really good debate and conversation, even within the Midwestern Marks um, editorial board and our staff, you know, and and what I keep coming back to is, as with everything with Marxism, is having a scientific and principled understanding of, of what proletarian patriotism means. So what we want to avoid is the bourgeois conception, the bourgeois distortion of patriotism, which is a national, I mean, which is a, a natural feeling of identity and community that all working classes um, tend to feel towards their countries. Um, and and the, the distortion of this, the, the bourgeois capitalist distortion has been national chauvinism, the idea that we need to fight this war on terror and you need to pay all your tax dollars and send your kids to fight and die in these wars in Iraq because you love your country. You know, that's what loving your country means. Um, and, and this is the distortion of patriotism. This is the bourgeois uh, playing or praying um, on the natural feelings that that working class people have, the feelings of community and, and identity. Um, and that's what we want to avoid. But then we also want to avoid on the other side is the left pessimism, the oh, you know, we might as well just wait for countries in the third world to rise up and eventually America will collapse. You know, the idea that the working class in the US can't do anything, that we can't seize the imperial estate apparatus um, and turn it into a worker state that focuses on construction and, and on a foreign policy of mutual development. Um, so, so for you, what is the key of, of finding, as our buddy Haas from Infrared calls it, the iron path, the path of not straying into pessimism, but also not being allowing the bourgeois to, to, um, to push this idea of, of national chauvinism that they've used to promote imperialism for so many years? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's about um, learn. You really have to learn your history. You have to. For me, it's about learning our history. It's about learning about electoral politics in the United States. 
And more importantly, with regard to electoral politics in the United States, it's about learning about the mechanisms of power that we as true revolutionaries and true Marxists can leverage and can utilize to fight for the things that we care about. Because if you're not aware of how we can actually achieve success, if you're not aware of how we can actually create an abundance of wealth for all in this country, then of course you're going to be pessimistic. But a true revolutionary, true socialist learns their history because pessimism is the antithesis of socialism. Socialism is about progress. It's about progress for working class people. It's about progress for all people in the country. It's about you know, progress for our infrastructure, for our climate, for the environment, for, um, you know, our, our, how our, it's about progress for everything. So if you are pessimistic, how can you call yourself a socialist? How can you be ca calling yourself a socialist? You can't. What you can do is engage in like um, reasonable criticism. You can be real about the situation. But uh, if you're, if you're going to be real about the situation, you would recognize that there are many ways in which we can actually achieve meaningful, uh, you know, socialist goals through the mechanisms and power that currently exist. So um, that's how that's how I see it. That's how I see it because when I when I look at like the American political climate today, I'm I'm not pessimistic. Like I, there's there I I I believe honestly that we could make this happen. Um, mainstream culture and specifically like political culture is dominated so much by a nominally liberal um suburban uh i wouldn't say like maybe middle class and i think if um i i think if you were to go around to the vast majority of counties in this country you would recognize that there is worker solidarity there is um you know proletariat solid solidarity and, and working class people do share a common ideology that is of which to improve uh, this country uh, for their fellow American. And that, again, is the most patriotic point of view you could have. Yes, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you a question, uh, which sort of dives deeper into maybe the psychology of, of the sort of people that were responding to your tweet and the sort of people that were then responding to our retweet of your tweet. Um, so in the McCarthyite era and in the decades that followed, communists struggled a lot to make sure that the working class and the American public understood that communism is not anti-American, that this BS proposed by McCarthy, McCarthyism is not true. And they fought hard to develop a, uh, a to, to fight against this conception of communism as anti-American. We have uh, with uh, uh, Earl Browder in the Communist Party, uh, the notion that communism is 20th century Americanism, right? Um, so where do you think that turn happens where the hegemonized left sort of internalizes this McCarthyite uh, smear really of what communism is um, and, and, and ends up accepting socialism in the US as this anti-American uh, thing, right? So we've have traditionally fought against that notion and now the hegemonized left completely accepts it. So where do you think that shift happens? Why do you think it happens? And why is it so successful in being accepted by all of these uh, younger folks on, on Twitter specifically? I think it really started um, in like the late, I think it started in probably like very late 60s, 70s with like the, um, you, you know, like the, the hippie movement, 
and like the rejection of the hippie movement of like anything that was considered like mainstream or anything that was considered like uh, like the normal political discourse or the normal uh, way of American life. And that sort of like ideology had has infected the minds of so many people ever since then. And it's been celebrated as some sort of like a left wing like fantasy, like oh the the hippie era, like that's when everything was cool it was peace and drugs, it was good music. Um, it, you know, and it, it's just like that, that's not that's not Marxism that if you have that ideology, if that's how you think you can have that but like that's not Marxism, that's not socialism. And that's not patriotism um and i think it's like i think it's like morphed itself into what we see today what the cia is promoting all across the world like that sort of culture ha has risen to the point now where it's turned into cancel culture um and anytime you 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 stray away from the mainstream political discourse which is so focused on being politically correct it's so focused on like um, being an apologist for each and everything that like evil people in this country have ever done. Um, that if you tried to call yourself a patriot, then for some reason you're going to get canceled for that. So I see like, I see cancel culture as like the, the, uh, mainstream or the, 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 the current version rather of this sort of, sort of ideology that rose in the sixties and seventies that, uh, led to a lot of good lefty patriots, uh, fall into something that really doesn't stand for Marxism or patriotism or socialism at all. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, where I think a lot of uh, the tweet from Midwestern Marx stemmed from of, you know, um, and some people didn't like it, but you know, the saying that you guys have, or this is non-Marxist, the position these ultra leftists are taking and, and what I've seen, and, you know, I'm on TikTok a lot, so I interact with young people quite a bit, but it's uh um, people think that moving from being a liberal or moving from being a Bernie Sanders social democratic leftist to being a Marxist just means moving further left on everything. So the right takes this position that we're patriotic, you know, and that means we should do the war on terror and blah, 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 um, all these uh, horrible things so that therefore the left should say, no, we need to destroy America. But this is non-Marxist, right? As, as I said before, Marxism is the path of steel. Marxism is the path of construction um, and, and is the path of class struggle. So just because the right is saying patriotism needs or means we need to invade Iraq doesn't mean we say no, patriotism needs to be thrown out the window and, and we need to destroy America. Um, but no, what patriotism really is, is this feeling of identity and community that exists among the working class that's stolen from them from the bourgeoisie. Um, but we need to uh, promote this and not only that, um, but change its form. So part of Marxism is that, you know, um, what is true now wasn't necessarily true 20 years ago. You know, we, we live in a constantly evolving, constantly changing world. So these ideas like patriotism um, have been used by our bourgeois imperialist country for years to, to promote bad things. Um, but what more of a change in form could there be than a Marxist-Leninist like you saying, I, you know, I am a Marxist-Leninist, I am an anti-imperialist, I am a patriot. Uh, that is the change in form that we want to see. That no, patriotism does not mean chauvinism. Loving your country does not mean wanting your country's military to invade on other countries. Loving your country means promoting the working class, uh, class um, to uh, seize the state apparatus and, and create a country of, of construction rather than destruction. 
Um, so I think you represent or your tweet kind of represented that change in form um, and what we want to create um, with Marxism in the U.S. in the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was again, I was shocked by how much controversy it caused. But then when I saw like people unpacking it all, I was actually surprised by the fact that it was actually kind of split 50 50 too. I was like, oh, well, there's actually a lot of people who do agree with this, given how apparently controversial it is, um, which was cool. But I, what I think it really shows is how many people and, and people always say, you know, Twitter's not real life, whatever. Like I, I've, I haven't been on Twitter that long, so I'm still like learning about all the different little like communities and shit within it. But um, I think that uh, it really does show how many American leftists really do, like they, they don't leave their phone or their computer screen beyond like going to a single day protest in which they can take a selfie and make a sign for it. Like they, they just really don't do stuff like outside of that. Uh, maybe they'll go shop at like Whole Foods. Maybe they'll go to like, um, you know, Nectar and get some like clean juice or some shit. But like, they're not actually going to be engaging in anything that's uh, building working class solidarity. Now, when I when I ran for city council the second time, um, I changed my entire campaign strategy. And like, it was, it was really interesting because like my campaign strategy changed in the sense that I wanted to get union support for my campaign. Um, and it's, it's a sensitive issue to be supported by unions here because what do unions want to do that like construction unions that they want to build. And when you have a city, like a city I live in, which is a uh, very environmentally sensitive, lots of historic homes, uh, lots of like low architecture, like single story units, two story units, it's kind of hard to work with unions, the people who want to build more. But um, in, in trying to learn from them and hear from the workers throughout this county who are just trying to make a living, I saw how important it was firsthand to engage with workers, to engage with unions, to learn about how we can actually unite with the people who think that, say, building more um, fracking wells and more fracking pipelines is the answer that like no 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 we can actually build a future for this country and give you all good paying jobs by implementing solar panels on the eight high schools in south orange county which is what we did so like there there's something to be said about actually talking with workers meeting with unions supporting them if you can i was on strike with our uh, or it was, it was a lead up to a strike for the grocery store workers here and i got to spend days with them out um essentially on a picket line and i think so many american leftists just really uh don't understand um why people like myself have such a deep love for my fellow countrymen and fellow countrywoman for that matter um, because when I'm out there and when I see people who are suffering there, I, I have no other option, but to love them and, but to try to help them, even if I disagree politically with them, like, like, sure. Is the overwhelming majority of this country absolutely filled with like cancerous American exceptionalist ideology? Yes. Yes. Do I like that? No. In the same way that I reject the imperialist state that I live within, I reject that shit too. But I can love them for other things and I can try to help them and try to see uh, that a, a Marxist vision, a Marxist future in this country is the future that we all need. That's uh, excellent what you said. That's why part of when we saw the reaction to your tweet, 
what came to mind was two things. Well, none of these people have engaged with any of the Marxist classics. And two, they've probably worse, they've never engaged with a working class American. Eddie and I spent some time uh, in the 2020 um, primaries canvassing for Bernie, which the best part of that was, you know, talking to maybe thousands of working class people in Iowa, which again, just to reiterate, I don't feel like it needs to be done, but for some people, I guess it does. Working class is not equal white. Um, I don't know why people keep saying that, uh, but we, we talk to thousands of working class people. And if you go knock on their door and you tell them, hey, I wanna to talk to you about how to destroy America, they're gonna close the door on your fucking face. I'm sorry, but that's not a winning strategy. Um, we would go up to them and tell them, do you want to talk about Bernie Sanders, which they know is socialist. If they're listening to Fox, they know it's socialist. We go and we talk to them about socialism and they're open to that. Um, but what they're not open to is to talk about how to destroy the country that they live in. That's just thinking that that's okay is absurd. And it shows that, you know, it's these coastal, no offense, <laughs> but it's these, these coastal New York types uh, and California types that don't really engage with the heartland, they don't engage where industry and industry workers are at. Um, and that's a reality that, that I think it slaps you in the face. I think I was probably more um, open to their position before I got to engage with thousands of working class people in, in that time. Yeah, that that's a really good point. And it, uh, it does really make a difference when you go out and talk to people outside of like a Twitter bubble, um, which it is usually most of the time it's uh, it's dominated by people like myself who maybe have worked some working class jobs in the past, maybe if we're lucky, but like are currently like prominent lefty, like podcasters or journalists or political commentators. And everyone knows that they're not getting out and talking to working class people like most of them. So that, I mean, that's not good either, but um you, you do bring up a good point there and that like going out and actually talking with people does make a huge difference. Um, I, I'm just like, I, I'm just honestly like confused how so many people think that uh, socialism and Marxism shouldn't be about or isn't about trying to make the lives of Americans better because that, that is what it's about. Like I, 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 I will never have an answer to like, the United States engaging in endless war or the United States causing our infrastructure to crumble or the United States government uh, failing the working class people in this housing crisis. And I will never look at those issues and have the answer and respond with like, oh yeah, like let's just, let's, let's just destroy the country because that seems like the reasonable way to address all these issues. No, no, no reasonable person would say that shit. No reasonable person would be like, well, you know, we would do something about the housing crisis, but this is like a settler colonial state. So we're just going to, we're just going to say fuck it and let all these poor people go homeless. You know, like we would, we'd love to really, but like settler colonial state. So it just, none of it adds up in the real world when you try to apply their backwards ideology to the real issues that are, you know, being or facing millions of Americans, um, specifically working class Americans all across this country. Yeah, none of it holds up in the real world, including this idea that when we say working class, we mean the white working class. Of course not. America is a melting pot. You know, the working class 
is incredibly diverse in America. You know, and if you abandon the class struggle in America because you think, you know, um, the the white people within it are too chauvinistic or too racist for it to even be worth it to struggle for socialism, you're abandoning the entire working class. You're abandoning the working class of um, that is diverse. And not only that, but you're abandoning these countries in the global south who have been struggling for socialism against American imperialism. The number one way to help those countries in the global south is to lead a class struggle here um, and to overthrow our imperialist state apparatus. So to, so to act like, you know, what we're advocating for is MLs when we're advocating working class struggle is exclusive to white people is insane, you know, and then, as you said, when you apply this backward logic and practice and say we should abandon the working class um, because of that, you're abandoning um, uh, an incredibly diverse working class, not only here in the U.S., but all around the world. Yeah, I would be surprised if like the vast majority, if not like then the plurality of the working class in this country is nominally just black and brown people alone. Like I would be, I don't know, I don't know the stats, but like I would be surprised if it wasn't that. Um, But yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of like during the 2020 Democratic debates when Bernie Sanders was actually asked about like, oh, what do you want to do for black Americans? And you had all of these people up there, you know, who are giving these phony answers. Oh, you know, we need to fight for racial equity. We need to do this. And it was a lot of like just bullshit that talking points that people were putting out. And then Bernie Sanders goes up and he's like, he's like, well, black women have an extreme disparity in access to quality health care. Therefore, we need to ensure Healthcare to all Americans as a human right. And it's like, yes, that obviously if this, if, if all of these issues, if every single one of these issues is disproportionately negatively impacting working class people who are brown and black, then addressing those issues in a holistic universal manner will disproportionately help brown and black working class people. How do you not see this? And it's the same exact thing. It's the same exact like straw man attack that you see today with them coming to us now and saying like, well, why are you only focusing on like work, working class people? That's just white people. It's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? It, it really is insane. The, the hoops that they jump through to arrive at these conclusions. Yeah. And even in like, they're more charitable takes the, the people that would accept that like the working class is not white. There's this strong strand that comes from the new left, which just says, look, the working class in the Imperial core itself is just incapable of doing anything revolutionary. They are a priori opportunistic. Um, there's nothing you can do with them. They're done. You have to look for the lumpen proletariat. You have to look for these other classes. And this right here is, it might be a left-wing position, but it's not a Marxist position. We don't engage with the working class because they're the most oppressed. Marx has books in like the 18th Brumaire. He's talking about how the peasantry is more oppressed than the working class in, in France. <laughs> it's not because they're oppressed. It's because they're in a position in the economy that allows for surplus value to be created, that allows for the whole system to circulate, that allows in the extension, in its highest form of extension, that allows for imperialism. So it's because of their position in the economy. And we cannot just get another working class. We cannot just pull one out of the void. There was this instance in Germany where the Communist Party of, 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 uh, of uh, uh, the Democratic People's Republic is it no, the, the DDR, the Eastern Germany, they had this issue where like the working class voted against one of the positions that the party took. 
And then they hit, they did like this piece that was against what the working class had voted, like, oh, how sort of this condescending piece and Bertolt Brecht was like, <laughs> why don't you just find the new working class? And that's what these people want. They want this magic fucking fairy dust that just produces a working class out of nowhere, a creation ex nihilo of a working class. And that's not the case. We have a working class with flaws that we have to address, but we have to get to them. And the tactics that they're using, they won't even let you open the door. They won't even let you come into in through the door with the, taxes, the tactics that they're using. Another thing that I think is important that people forget is if you want to help the third world, you have to have a revolution here. Yes, you have to deconstruct imperialist narratives, imperialist propaganda. We do that, we're good at that. And some of these people are good at that as well. But the best thing you could do for the third world is destroy American imperialism at the root so that their socialist projects can develop peacefully. There's this one scene from a movie, uh, The Examined Life, uh, where the philosopher Michael Hart is in New York, he's in a, a, a canoe, and he's talking about his time going to Nicaragua. And he asked the Nicaraguans, how can I help you? And they're like, go the fuck back home and have a revolution over there. That would be the same response of every country suffering under imperialist sanctions, imperialist covert tactics. It'd be have a revolution here so you can cut imperialism at the root. And with these tactics, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're taking that McCarthy smear, that McCarthy gun that was aimed at you. You're taking it away from McCarthy's hand and shooting yourself with it. It's mm -hmm. just absurd. And how these people think this is at all revolutionary, at all Marxist, it's is mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the endless wars negatively impact the American people. So, um, again, the most patriotic thing you could do to help your fellow countrymen would be to end those wars. I mean, it's just, it's so obvious. And yeah, you bring up a good point there also, like uh, the U.S. empire through economic and military warfare, we've been able to destroy economy after economy after economy that's trying to fight for the liberation of uh, the masses. And, and you look at uh, what has happened in Venezuela today, I think that's the, you know, that is probably the most glowing example of that. Uh, the UN special reporter on the enjoyment of human rights and unilateral coercive measures, which is a fancy way of saying sanctions. She's a fucking expert on sanctions. She did a report um, in which she went down to Venezuela for um, a good chunk of time. She met with uh, the leaders of the country. She met with the fake leaders of the country, the coalition under Juan Guaido. Uh, she met with... Uh, you know, military members, business leaders, nonprofit entities, international organizations working in the country, working class people, everyone you could imagine in the country she met with. And her report for the UN came back with the findings that US sanctions on the country caused, and I, I shit you not, this is what her report says, a 99% decline in the Venezuelan economy via the U.S. and Western allied sanctions. So literally everything that you hear Fox News talk about, everything you hear CNN talk about, everything you hear the shit lib on Twitter talk about, about Venezuela, oh, you just, you just want America to be like Venezuela. Yeah, I would love it if Venezuela um, could, could, you know, or if America could have the same policies that the Venezuelan government is fighting for. They're giving out free food to their people. But... Everything that they're doing, be it the food, be it what they've tried to do with their oil industry, has been, uh, it's been crushed by the hands of the American empire. And um, if we can stop that, if we can 
fight within our own country to improve the lives of Americans and improve the lives of other people by stopping the U.S. empire, um, this whole world is going to look a whole lot better in a very short period of time. Absolutely. And I mean, to go to even into even some more detail, all that money from the Venezuelan government, that money taught people how to read. You know, it, it advanced literacy rates. It massively decreased poverty. It massively decreased illiteracy. It built thousands of homes for people. Um, it set up tuition free universities and it provided food to these thousands of communes um, that are set up in Venezuela to build socialist consciousness. And when Iran tried to send Venezuela four tankers of oil through the blockade, try to circumnavigate the blockade, uh, the U.S., because they have so much military um, and so much uh, or so or the Navy is hanging out in the Caribbean um, as well as Colombia, they intercepted those oil tankers, brought them to Houston, Texas and gave the oil to a U.S. oil company. So, you know, when people say like, oh, it's just sanctions, you know, sanctions don't mean that much. It's literally the U.S. surrounding Venezuela with troops. And anytime somebody tries to ship something in there, they steal it. Um, and, and that's for trying to teach their people to read. That's for trying to feed their people. Um, and, and that's right next to Cuba as well um, in the Caribbean there. So, you know, the effect that it would have not only for, you know, Venezuela, but for that whole region and for Iran and for all the, these countries who are being held under sanction um, regime right now, um, the effect that that would have if we could lead the American working class or, you know, if the American working class could rise up um, here in the United States. And, and you make another good point that, you know, people are attached to this idea of the labor aristocracy, right? The opportunism that existed in Lenin's day, where you had working class people and unions saying, oh, you know, we support imperialism, because it allows to us to live, you know, with more wealth. But after 40 years of neoliberalism, that is not, you know, the situation in the United States. 78% um, of the working class lives paycheck to paycheck. Um, and the working class of all races, creeds, and ethnicities are being drafted into the army out of high school and sent to fight and die in these wars. You know, our paychecks are, are going into taxes to, to fund the, the military budget. Um, that's billions of dollars. It is no longer in the interest of the working class uh, to fund the empire. And, you know, America is waking up to this as well. I got, you know, I tell the story all the time. I got like my whole wrestling team here in the Midwest to vote for Bernie Sanders um, uh, because a lot of them were in the military and a lot of them realized their recruiters had promised them they wouldn't be deployed and then they got deployed. Um, there are situations like this all over the U.S. If, if you talk to working class people, destroying the American empire is in the interest of the American working class today. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and that's one of those things that I was talking about earlier, like the mechanisms of power. God, imagine that. Imagine a, what is it, $768 billion, uh, you know, budget surplus that would be if we didn't allocate all of that money towards an empire and what we could do with that money. Um, to, to, to people who are like just cynical and don't want to engage in electoral politics, don't want to engage in any sort of like uh, popular uprising, maybe outside of electoral politics to fight against the empire you are giving up so many great opportunities. You're giving up specifically 760 billion opportunities to, to try to allocate stuff like that, funds like that, um, to building socialism in the United States. It, it's not just like we're going to be able to develop green infrastructure. We have a, our infrastructure gets like a grade of a D minus right now by the American, um, like American infrastructure experts. I don't know if there's some sort of a fucking union, but that's, I've, I've read that report. And like, 
you, you can't, you can't build that stuff for free. So how are we going to be able to achieve socialism, build socialism in this country by diverting funds that we are currently appropriating towards the empire to funnel into the pockets of working class people who will rebuild this country because that's what we need to have happen. Yes, absolutely. Um, to circle back into something that's contextually happening to our working class, um, in Washington, D.C. alone, it's approximately around 25 people are going to be evicted from their homes within the next month or two. Um, you protested against this lifting of the eviction ban, and you got arrested for that. Can you tell us a bit about the protest, what's going on with the lifting of the eviction uh, ban, and also uh, about the party through which you did the protest through, the, the People's Party? I, I, here, that's a new party. What's what's going on uh, there? What are its goals? What are its positions and stuff? Yeah. So I, I was in D.C. this week. I flew out from California for a protest that was being called to Occupy Congress. Um, it was like a it was like a, a deviation, one could say, of the protest that took place on the Capitol steps a few weeks ago that was led by Congresswoman Cori Bush, who is a justice Democrat, so-called progressive. Um, and she was fighting for initially uh, legislation to be passed through Congress to guarantee an eviction moratorium extension. Um, you know, that's the only way we could fight for an eviction moratorium extension because the Supreme Court ruled the CDC eviction mor moratorium extension as unconstitutional. So we had to pass legislation through Congress. Um, at the end of that uh, demonstration that Cori Bush did on the Capitol steps, when you know, they claimed victory, the progressives claimed victory. Um, they didn't get legislation passed through Congress. They got an eviction moratorium extension passed through the CDC. And then within several days, the CDC rule or the Supreme Court ruled that that CDC extension was unconstitutional again. So the whole thing was a sham. It was just political theater. Um, they didn't really want to engage in a fight against the Democratic Party elites because the Democratic Party elites are taking millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars from, you know, corporate real estate giants. Um, so basically, I went out to D.C. I was trying to, you know, organize with the People's Party. There was tons of great people there. Medea Benjamin of Code Pink was there. Lee Camp was there. Um, Nick Brana, who was the founder of the People's Party, which is this new uh, you know, third party that focuses on a lot of the same issues of the Bernie Sanders campaign um, was there. Um, who else was there? There was uh, Afini from Fred Hampton Leftist was there. Um, There's just so many great people there. And we were all fighting for, you know, not only an eviction moratorium extension, we actually wanted to fight for rent cancellation and rent forgiveness because the reason why the reason why so many Americans know they're going to be evicted within the next two months is not because like Americans are all of a sudden losing their jobs and like they're like, oh, my God, we don't have money anymore to pay for it. That's not it. The, the reason why so many Americans, uh, I think it's like 11.1 or 3 million Americans are facing eviction right now. And that number is probably going to continue to shoot up is because. So many Americans, so many of these Americans are actually behind like two months, three months, four months. I know some people that are behind 10 months on their rent because they lost their jobs during COVID and they haven't been able to make it up. How could you make it up if you work for a minimum wage job? And in the United States, there's not a single state where if you work full time as a minimum wage worker, you can even afford to pay for a, a single bedroom dwelling for minimum wage work, at, you know, um, full hours in the work week. So uh, I saw a stat yesterday. 
one, one in four, 25% of all renters in Washington state think they're going to be evicted within the next two months. I don't think anyone understands what that is going to do for, uh, the housing market for the economy. We only have like 600,000 homeless people in the United States right now, which is still wildly disproportionate to what we see in other like Western nations. Um, imagine if we doubled that just with like five, 600,000 more people or, you know, 12 million or 12, 1.2 million people. But like, no, that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at maybe 11 million people. What is that going to do? That's going to that's gonna shatter everything. This might be one of those moments that causes a mass uprising. Who knows? This country is like so, so – they think our leaders are so benign and actually working for them. I don't know if it will happen. But, like, it could be one of those moments. We'll just have to wait and see. All, all I know is that no one in Congress is going to fight to stop this from happening. We are the only ones there fighting to stop this from happening. And I got arrested with Paula Jean Swearingen, Nick Brana, and uh, Martin Gugino, who is the protester at Buffalo, New York, during the Black Lives Matter protest, who was shoved down by the cops and his head broke open and started bleeding. Um, we got arrested for using a bullhorn on the Capitol steps. So I don't think there's like anyone in Congress who's, who's going to like actually stand up and fight if they won't even come out and stand out with us on the Capitol steps again when millions of people are facing you know, homelessness and uh, real protesters, real activists are getting arrested for just like using a bullhorn. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And it shows the failure of the squad and of justice Democrats. And, you know, that's when I got into, I mean, it's not when I got into the left, but, you know, I was big on justice Democrats donated to AOC's campaign. And uh, it's been so disappointing, um, obviously, to to see them kind of shift towards um, neoliberalism and start being buddy buddy with Nancy Pelosi. But um, now you started supporting the People's Party, it seems. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm a member of CPUSA, uh, but we've been very interested in the in the People's Party and, and what they've been doing. So do you want to talk about that a lot, a little bit and, and what their goals are? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm a member of, uh, the people's party. I'm not like a rep or anything, but, um, they, they have like, a uh, they have a, a national like council of people that basically are, um, like public in endorsements of, of the people's party that I align with politically really great group of people. Um, Dr. Cornell West is one of them. Um, there, there's a time, I mean, Jimmy Dore is one of them. I love his show. Um, and they fight for issues I care about. They're to the left of, I said they're kind of like an extension almost of the Bernie campaign because they tried to draft Bernie Sanders to run initially under a third party, which would have been this party had it been formed in uh, 2016 when they're trying to get Bernie to run. But um, they're, they're to the left of Bernie, definitely on a number of issues. I mean, Midia Benjamin, again, of Code Pink, I'm not saying Code Pink is like the end all be all to anti-imperialist foreign policy, you know, opinions and, and views. I'm, I'm not saying that, but uh, she's also a, one of those public um, endorsers of this party and has guided a lot of their foreign policy takes uh, that I've found to be much more interesting than those of the Bernie campaign when it comes to like Palestine, when it comes to Syria, when it comes to Yemen. Um, and they also support the freedom and are active uh, supporters of the freedom of Julian Assange, which is something Bernie didn't speak out a lot about. Um, they're not explicit, explicitly like socialists or Marxists or anything like that. But as you can imagine, um, they share a lot of the same goals that like a Marxist would have. Uh, not all, but like a lot of them. 
And really, they're the only party that I've seen. It, building a third party takes a lot of work, takes a lot of work. I don't envy their work. Um, most of them are working for like no money. Um, they're just relying on savings and they're putting in countless hours trying to uh, organize long-term actions right now and build that, that solidarity and support for a third party that they'll eventually be launching with a slate of candidates in the 2022 um, midterm elections. They're going to be running members for the House. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I support what they're doing. I like they're getting out on the streets. They're the only party who's really actively engaging in the internet within the age of the internet. Um, they have an incredible fundraising apparatus that just makes the green party look like look like uh you know child's play and the green party is very in debt green party has lots of issues of corruption i would argue um and i just genuinely believe in the people who run the party i mean i believed in the justice democrats too but a lot of those og justice democrat people who were kicked out um and a lot of the brand new congress people who are initially trying to run not just democrats like that was the whole thing with brand new Congress was like they wanted to run people from all parties who would refuse corporate PAC money and corporate money. Um, and then some people within brand new Congress separated, created the Justice Democrats and took the approach of like reforming the Democratic Party. So, I mean, I, I don't agree with that sort of ideology, but like I did agree with a lot of the people who are initially in those groups and they've pretty much all since been forced out of those groups and been replaced with shit libs and actual like imperialist people are profiting from the military industrial complex but those og people who like started the party and were like very legit and left left uh you know the justice democrats left brand new congress when they saw shit hitting the fan are now making up the the uh you know the bones of the skeleton of the people's party and i think they know what they're doing and it's going to be really interesting to watch Agreed. Yeah, it's exciting to see another party. And, you know, it's with the failure of Justice Democrats, you know, I'm not uh, as optimistic as maybe I was before. But, you know, it seems like this party has learned um, kind of from from the failures of Justice Democrats. And they're looking to do a lot of community organizing, working class organizing, which long term, you know, I think is is the key and what every Marxist should um, get behind there, um, whatever party it's coming from. Um, I had I had one question. I like to say, or we like to say, Vouch's name different every time we talk <laughs> about him. So, uh, and recently I did a breakdown of, of your debate with old Vouch. Um, so, if you want to uh, talk about um, um, that debate, and uh, you don't have to get totally into the OPCW cover up, but I do want to hear, you know, uh, uh, looking back on that debate and reflecting on it, um, did you take anything away from that? Um, were you just pumped that you that you owned um, such a shit lib like Vosh? Yeah, I mean, it was my first like real debate ever. And I had a really good time during it. And I enjoyed seeing him break down in real time. And ever since I've enjoyed him, uh, you know, just like breaking down and like withering away uh, as the days have gone on. I mean, I talk a lot about on my channel how like I want to I want there to be like, you know, like, OK, like channels like ours channel, like um, infrared Haas at infrared channels like uh, Caleb Maupin. I think he does really great work like we are going to, you know, eventually replace the bread tube scene like it's it's inevitable. It's a, just a question of how quickly it happens. I think it's already happening pretty quickly, like all our channels are new and they're growing very fast um, because we're doing good work. And uh, 
it's been it's been cool to see that it's been cool to see people's people from his audience who've like come over to my channel and my community and like now see that he's a liar um and gee i mean i hope i get to do more debates with him in the future i don't think he'll want to because again it was my first debate i don't really do a lot of the debates anyways like i don't know if i'll ever do a whole lot more of debates i'm gonna do a few but not a lot um and i i destroyed him so much in that single debate it went trending number 15 nationwide on twitter like not just in politics but like for everything so i think i think he was like very flustered by that but i would love to debate him again um obviously that was a very niche issue so i feel like it was hard for people to like maybe follow it or draw political lines and maybe that was a good thing in some regards but like I would like to debate him on electoral politics because I think that's how we're actually going to be able to like win people over on the left. Uh, I don't think a OPCW cover-up scandal debate is necessarily going to like win people over to one side or another. I think it contributed, but I think an electoral uh, debate might be far more fruitful and like uh, succeeding in, in the aims that we have. Yeah, you might be right, but at the same time, like, um. Bush always tries to make these abstract narratives, right? And he always tries yeah. to point to like, oh, you know, when he I'm I'm assuming he had looked into the issue before y'all debated and he was like, Oh, I'm wrong. So I have to smear him as an Assad defender. You know, if I can if I can get my audience to just think of this guy as a crazy tanky, then I don't actually have to engage on the evidence. But like the more specific the argument got and the more you were actually talking about real evidence and, and the issue at hand, the more silly he looked and the more obvious it became that that he didn't know what he was talking about with that issue. So I agree that, you know, a, a more broad debate might be good, but also, you know, that's kind of the trick that he plays is, you know, um, I'm the rational one. I'm the, you know, centrist shit lib and all these other people, all these anti-imperialists are just crazy tankies, but you didn't, you did an amazing job of, of bringing it back to that issue and just hammering the, um, the OBCW cover-ups and sticking to the, the reports from Ian Henderson. So, yeah, I just wanted to commend you on that. That was an awesome job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of fun. And I think, I think there are uh, fact-based conversations that could be had specifically surrounding like the failures of the squad, because I'd imagine most of his audience supports them and the justice Democrats. And I want to wake them up. Um, I think that would be a really fruitful debate, like the failures of the squad. Absolutely. Well, Jackson, brother, thank you so much for coming on. It's been fantastic. Um, we're living in scary, but great fucking times. It's the time of monsters. Gramsci had a phrase. He said, the old world is dying. The new one has yet to be born. It's the time of monsters. And if there has been an objectively revolutionary condition in the U.S. over the last hundred years, it is right now. We have 11 million people possibly getting evicted. We have the situation with COVID and the natural general contradictions of the relations and the mode of production and capital. We have the decline of American hegemony globally. So whoever is able to, in the US, get to the masses and do what they have to do to build this historical class consciousness that is necessary to move us towards socialism is going to win. Now is the time to act. Now is the time to think. And now is the time to do what we have to do to, to move our country towards socialism and our working class towards its glorious historical victory. Um, so any strands that prevent us from doing that, I think are worth fighting for, fighting against. 
um, whether it's bread tube, whether it's these other ultra tendencies that um, intend to bring in tactics that are uh, death to America like. So uh, thank you very much for the work that you're doing and for coming on. Hey, thank you so much. And uh, that was very well said. I say clip that and post that shit on his home because that was <laughs> facts right there. So thank you so much uh, for having me on. And uh, yeah, keep up the great work. I love your show. And um, yeah, appreciate it. Have a good one. For sure. Thank you, Jackson.